Hello, my IHH lovelies, and welcome back to a long overdue episode of It Happened Here. Last week, we hit a pretty significant milestone in my books over 10,000 downloads, which I have to tell you, I think is amazing. Yes, I know that some podcasts do hundreds of thousands of downloads with each week, but I'm still completely chuffed with hitting 10k, especially after just four and a bit months of putting these into the world. And that's really down to you guys for sharing and supporting this project. So thank you so much. I also have some specific thanks to make, and that's to the several new Patreon members, because that little crowd is growing too. So Carmen Williams, Lindsay Cabrita, Sharice Pestana, Cara Theat, and Jessica Simons, you are my newest patrons and my newest heroes. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful for the support. I know not everyone will be or wants to be a direct patron of the show, and that's totally cool. If you want to show support in other ways, I'd ask you to please consider following us or subscribing on whatever app you use to listen to your podcasts. And if you're keen to do even more than that, please rate or review the show or just share it with your friends. The last bit of admin before we get into the story is to offer a quick trigger warning to say that this case includes mention of rape and sexual assault, in addition to some gory violence, even for us. And fair warning, I have been known to drop an F-bomb or two just to manage expectations if you're new here. Without further preamble, here is episode 16 of It Happened Here. Today's case is an interesting one for a number of reasons. Firstly, because our subject, Pindile Joseph Njungwana, was not an anonymous guy before this series of crimes put him in the papers. In fact, he used to be a professional rugby player, and you know how South Africans feel about their rugby. Now, he wasn't the most prolific or top-tier player, but in his prime, which was roughly 1998 to 2001, he played as a flanker for the Blue Bulls, or Blobula, as they're more often called in Pretoria, their home city. They're a popular team, just in case you are not familiar or you're listening from outside of South Africa. They really are one of the powerhouse rugby franchises locally, with a fierce fan base. I used to be a bit of a Bulls fan back in the Buckies and Matfield days, but never to the level of some fans who like to show their allegiance by hanging a pair of blue plastic balls from the back of their cars to look like, well, you get the picture. The other reason this case got so much attention was that Pindile is a literal axe murderer. So if you're a fan of Morbid, this might be your second axe murderer of the week, which I think is fitting for spooky season. This particular murderer went on a week-long rampage in March 2011, murdering four people and attempting to kill at least two others, and one of his victims remains unidentified to this day. When this case got to court, it also opened up a significant debate around the categorization of mad versus bad, which I think is a red-handed quote, if I'm not mistaken, from the very early days of the show. Pindile, like a lot of black South Africans at this time, often went by his English name Joseph, so you may see this name in reference to the case. I've chosen to go with Pindile, as I believe it's his given first name. 
He came from a middle-class background. His dad was also a former national rugby player, and he attended Settlers Agricultural High School in Limpopo, where he was a prefect. Despite his size and rugby prowess, his schoolmates described him as a quiet and friendly guy, even one of them calling him a teddy bear. But that teddy bear was nowhere to be seen in 2011. This man committed some of the most brutal attacks I have ever read about. During his trial, Pendele would claim that his terrible actions were the result of profound mental illness, and he'd deny having any recollection of the events that transpired, opening up a whole psychological and legal can of worms. But before we get to that, we need to rewind about four months. Because, you see, the manifestations of Pendele's unravelling actually starts earlier than that grisly week in March. It starts with a woman walking alone through the streets of downtown Durban one November night. Now, the details of this encounter would only come out much later in court, once Pindele is already on trial for murder. The victim, who has chosen to remain anonymous in the media, bravely stepped up to testify against him and share the extraordinary details of her time with him. Let's call her Valerie, which means bravery. Valerie had been visiting her sister earlier that evening, but was now heading home when a car pulls up out of the dark and the occupant, Pindile, offers her a lift. She accepts, but it doesn't take her long to regret that choice because it is quickly evident that the hulking man beside her has absolutely no intention of taking her where she's headed. Let's remember that this is a former rugby player, now gone to seed like only a former strongman can. He's gigantic. He would have been at least 100 kilos of muscle in his prime and much bigger, if a bit softer, by the time of these crimes. Instead of taking her home, Pindele drives Valerie to his own house in Yellowwood Park, a quiet suburb in the south of Durban. When they get there, he forces Valerie into his home and takes her up to his bedroom, a place that she will become painfully familiar with as he holds her captive and repeatedly rapes her over the next three days. Valerie will go on to tell the court that during this time, Pindele seemed deranged. Among the things he'd accuse her of was being an ex-girlfriend of his, which just wasn't the case. One of the psychologists that later examined him would tell the court that Pindele believed that Valerie had successfully swapped bodies, and that's why she didn't look like his ex anymore. During the time that Valerie was trapped in Pindele's house, she became increasingly certain that he was completely unhinged, psychotic in the actual sense of the word, and that he was going to kill her. So she does something incredibly brave. She starts to think about how to lead the cops to him in the event of her death, looking for ways to help identify him if she's killed, like finding a pay slip of his and hiding it in her clothing so the cops have something to go on if and when they find her body. She also starts to play into his delusions, which must be terrifying, but is perhaps quite smart. I want to be clear here, I'm not a psychologist, handing out advice, but it's very hard to reason against a lack of reason, so playing along seems like one of the best courses of action. As part of this, Valerie convinces Pindile to take her to her sister's apartment under the guise of just going to collect some things before returning with him. For whatever reason, Pindile agrees. On the way out, Valerie palms his ID book and slips it into her pocket. Finally, after three terrifying days, It's on this expedition 
that she manages to get free and flee. Once she's safe, Valerie goes to the police to report what's happened. She shows up with Pindile's ID book, his payslip, and she's memorized his car license plate number two. But despite having all this information for the cops, essentially handing them the case on a silver platter, they don't seem to do anything about it. Oh, and if you're not already incensed by that, and you should be, she isn't the only person who reported Pindile to the cops around this time. Two days before he kidnapped her, Pindile had assaulted another man, Mkleli Tolo. Pindile had assaulted Mkleli in the street with a baton, stopping only when the occupants of a nearby house turned on their lights to see what the commotion was. That victim also managed to take Pindile's license plates and also reported the incident to the police. Way down the line, these charges are subsequently added to those that he faces in court, but it's incredibly infuriating that here was a clear chance missed. Two eminently solvable cases, and doing so could have prevented four murders and two further assaults, but the police don't. So Pindile, clearly dangerous and potentially in the midst of a psychotic break, is still a free man come 2011, free to go on the rampage that starts on March 20th. It's just before 10 that night when two motorists driving along a dark street in Montclair see something that will live in their nightmares for years to come. And this is where it gets graphic, so, you know, you know the deal. Skip ahead if you're not up for that. On the side of the road, the witnesses see a massive individual looming over something, methodically chopping at what they soon realize is another person. Pindele stands above a prone figure, repeatedly swinging an axe, with such force that later one of the witnesses will describe seeing the body bouncing off the pavement with the force of the blows. Terrified, they speed off and call the cops before returning to the scene several minutes later. The assailant, who neither witness managed to get a clear look at in the dark, is gone by this point. What remains of his victim makes for a gruesome sight. Tembelen Kosini Gebekulu's head is lying in a gutter, completely severed from his body. Two days later, a gruesome discovery is made in the Mir Bank area of Durban. This time there are no witnesses, but a decapitated head is found in a street dustbin. Two kilometers away in Lamontville, the headless body of Pindele's second victim, Paulus Longwa, is discovered just meters from his home, where his family waits expecting to sit down to the dinner he was bringing home from his job as a security guard at the Mirbank KFC. Although Pindele has managed to commit two gruesome murders in public and get away without being caught, which would suggest, you know, a degree of control, or at least being vaguely in control, there is some detail in between these two events that adds to the picture of exactly what state he's in. For starters, Tembelen Cosini and Paulos aren't his only victims during the period. On March 21st, the day between the two murders, another attack occurs in Mlazi. The victim, Siyanda Kumalo, described walking home at night and seeing a silver car slowing down as it approaches him. The car parks, and when Siyanda turns, there's a man following him who shouts out to him to wait. Now, Siyanda clearly knows something is very wrong with this situation, because he books it, not waiting to find out what was about to go down. That reflex probably saved his life, as according to a witness, Pindele threw his axe at Siander's back as he made his escape. 
The next day, on the 22nd of March, which is the day that Pindele killed Paulos, there's an additional attack, likely just an hour before Paulos' murder. Again, the victim manages to escape, but not before a truly bizarre encounter that, along with other details of the case, will later play into speculation that Pindele's actions were the result of long-standing mental health issues and that he was not fully in control of his actions. It's almost 11pm when Kangalani Mgluli is walking home from work and sees a silver-grey Peugeot slowly driving towards him along Road 1 in Le Montville. That's the same suburb you'll note where Paulus' body is later found. A man exits the car and approaches him and says, I'm sure you never thought you'd see me again. Kangalani is utterly confused and more than a little scared because he has no idea who this menacing person is. Never mind why he'd be looking for him. Pindile then demands to know why Kangalani infected his child with HIV before grabbing him and unsheathing an axe from an orange plastic shopping bag. Kangalani raises his arms over his head to protect himself and takes an axe blow to the stomach before managing to free himself and evade Pindile's pursuit. Now hang on, I promise I'm not just going to gloss over that detail. Yes, before attacking Kangalani, Pindile accuses him of infecting his daughter with HIV. That sounds like motive, and it would make this attack targeted rather than random, except for a glaring problem. Pindile doesn't actually have a daughter. There's no daughter to have been infected. There's no infection. Kangalani's attack is random, or at least it's part of what appears to be another moment of complete break from reality. Having failed in this attempt, Pindele goes on to murder Paulos later that night, another indiscriminate victim who just happened to cross paths with Pindele at the worst possible time. So now we are up to March 22nd. Pindele has committed two murders and two attempted murders in just three short hot nights. If this wasn't very real, very tragic reality, it would sound like the plot of an 80s slasher movie. The slow passing car, the stranger in the headlights, the swinging axe. The next night, March 23rd, Pindele once again heads out into the suburbs of Durban, this time a little further north of his previous hunting grounds, to an area called Mbilo. Just like the other incidents, he attacks his next victim, Simon Ngidi, in the street, and once again there's someone on hand to witness the entire scene. Pindele chases Simon down the street, and when he fell, Pindele swung his axe, chopping at him repeatedly for what the witness says felt like at least five minutes. Now bear in mind this isn't in some dark alleyway. This area is described as well lit with streetlights on both sides. Regardless, Pindele just methodically hacks at Simon's neck in plain view, before finally looking up and running from the scene when the witness shouts at him. Pindele's last victim, number four in the order that I'm listing them here, remains, as I said, unidentified. All we know about him is that he was killed at some point during the week that this murder spree occurred. His body was found in Yellowwood Park, partially decomposed on the 1st of April, discovered by some poor bystander out walking his dog. This victim is also missing his head. Unlike the others, though, his pants have been pulled down around his ankles, though the significance of that is still a mystery. A post-mortem suggests that this fourth victim was killed at some point in the ten days prior to him being found, begging the question, 
when exactly does this murder fit in the timeline? Now, I have a theory here, but let's be clear, this is total speculation on my part. But if we look at Pendelay's MO in the other instances, it seems possible that perhaps he attacked this unfortunate, unidentified person after his last failed attempt, which was on Siander Kumalo, the assault victim. The fact that the body was found in the same suburb where Pendelay lived, plus his apparent random selection of victims, seems to back this up. Maybe he was driving home after his attack on Siander and happened across this poor man in a conveniently quiet spot along the way. Whatever the case, Pendelay's arrest for the murder of his three other victims came before the fourth body was found. Around midnight on the 28th of March, Pendelay was tracked down by police at his parents' house in Yellowwood Park. The officers were operating on the basis of information supplied by witnesses and survivors, that the perpetrator was a large, well-built man, that he drove a silver sedan, and finally, remember that assault back in 2010, the one where the victim gave the car license plate number to police? Well, despite nothing coming of it at the time, it was that key piece of evidence that led police to tracking down the car and Pindile. Now, in terms of what actually went down on the night of the arrest, there isn't a tremendous amount of detail available. But we do know that the axe that Pindile used to kill his victims was found in a dog kennel right underneath his bedroom window. Yeah, not big on subtlety, this one. In their testimony, the arresting officers mentioned that the smell from the kennel itself was revolting, and that there was bloody clothing and plastic bags inside as well. Police also found traces of blood in Pindale's shower, as well as traces on a towel that he had used. As with many trials in this country, and perhaps because he was something of a celebrity, Pindale's trial stretched out over a particularly long period, March 31st, 2011, till the 19th of December, 2014, to be exact. I'm not going to go into all of the details of the trial, because the majority of the timeline and facts have already been laid out. But what I would like to focus on is the question of Pindale's mental state, something his lawyers raised repeatedly throughout the case to mitigate judgment. Pendele's defense was essentially not guilty by reason of pathological criminal incapacity, meaning that he wasn't mentally competent at the time the murders occurred, and he couldn't even remember his actions. He said the same thing, incidentally, about elements of that three-day-long abduction and rape of the survivor that I called Valerie. And there were several quite sensational moments in the trial where Pendele exhibited either signs of profound mental illness or, depending on how you read his actions, play acting to suggest profound mental illness. Some of the cops who handled him on his way in and out of court reported that he was speaking in tongues and shoving police officers. At one point, an ambulance was called to attend to him after an apparent seizure. The paramedics, however, said that they could find no physical signs wrong with him. His lawyer also pushed to have the case postponed until Pindile could be examined for psychological fitness to stand trial. Even his own family members cited periods over the preceding two years where he had seemed confused or disorientated, and it emerged that he had been treated for mental illness issues in the past. His mother would describe to the court finding piles of the psychiatric drugs her son was meant to be taking untouched in his room after his arrest. 
His defence team submitted evidence that he had been diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder bipolar type, presenting with symptoms of paranoid persecutory delusions. In many ways, the court case turned into a bit of a battle of the experts, psychiatrist versus psychiatrist. A doctor for the defence, for example, testified that Pendelay was suffering from a delusional disorder that was persistent and chronic. He said, quote, He was unable to control his impulses. There was a breakdown in his thinking, and this led to a disintegration of his personality, end quote. Pendelay's delusions, according to this psychiatrist, included his belief that he was being spied on, that people were attempting to kill him, and that even his sister was trying to poison his food. The state's experts, however, came out strongly in negation of this. When he was sent for psychiatric evaluation in the early stages of the trial, the state's psychiatrists declared him mentally fit. One of them, uh, Dr. Brayshaw, said in his experience of dealing with more than a thousand cases of people with delusions, very few crimes were associated with mental illness, and that he thought it was very unlikely that Pendelay had had amnesia for over four months, which is the period that the crimes span. Essentially, this doctor acknowledged that Pendelay had mental health struggles and had not been taking his medicine, but argued that there was no correlation between that and the crimes themselves. He testified that Pendelay was highly intelligent and would have understood right from wrong. He also took umbrage with the defense doctor's assertion that Pendelay's schizoaffective disorder affected memory. He testified that in his experience, people with delusional beliefs usually had sharp memories. In this battle of psychiatrist versus psychiatrist, where do we find ourselves? Because on the one hand, there is a lot of what we might call evidently deranged behavior, such as the accusations of body swapping and infecting non-existent daughters. On the other, there are also some pretty significant problems with Pendelay's story, ones that upon deeper inspection make it harder to swallow. For example, he wrapped that awful weapon in plastic when he was driving around with it, presumably in some attempt to keep it hidden. He also only went out late at night and ran when confronted by witnesses, and was even able to evade capture, for a while at least. A report in the city press from the time of the trial shows that he was active on Facebook on the days of the murder, chatting with friends and interacting with his old school's Facebook page. The city press interviewed several friends and former teammates of Pendelay, and all of them said roughly the same thing. They'd never seen any sign of violence in him. One acquaintance told the paper that he had spoken to Pendelay in the same week, as this reign of terror, and that he'd given no signs of confusion or any trouble in his life. Additionally, he did sort of attempt to hide evidence, although not very well. The horrific stench that officers described coming from the dog kennel where Pindele stored his weapon certainly seemed to indicate that he was, at the very least, not thinking super clearly. But he had cleaned himself and his bathroom after the incidents. And if he was suffering from amnesia, the axe in the kennel seems like it might have been a dead giveaway to him or his family. Even for someone without any memory of what has gone down the night before, the stink and the axe are pretty big clues that something was going on. Anyone even slightly concerned by the fact would likely have sought out some sort of help, right? So it seems like there's a lot in the plus column and a lot in the negative column, all of which leaves me quite confused on where I stand. If I'm completely honest, I must say that usually 
I find it quite easy to make a judgment call on whether I think someone is playing the system or needs to be in the system. But in this case, I really am quite confused. We have to balance our need to feel that justice is served, to deliver justice to victims and their families, with the presumption of innocence and not wanting someone who is unwell to be punished for actions beyond their ken. And in this case, there's another element to consider too, the duty of the police and justice systems to protect the populace. Even if we think Pindele was out of his mind when he swung that axe, he had clearly become a danger to society, and a judge would have been remiss if he'd allowed him to go free. Ultimately, the High Court judge was unconvinced that there could be any defence mounted on amnesiac terms, and he didn't feel that the mental health issues raised excluded understanding right from wrong. He described Pindele as unrepentant. He actually cited the fact that Pindele did not get up in his own defence to testify, which is an interesting thing to object to. It is very uncommon, I think in South Africa and in most countries, for an accused to get up to testify. The judge sentenced Pindele to five life terms, plus four years each for two attempted murders, two years for assault, and four years for kidnapping. Seven years later, in June 2021, just a few months ago, Pindele attempted to appeal his sentence, and once again, he did so on the grounds of being mentally ill at the time of his actions. This appeal was rejected, and he remains behind bars today. This episode of It Happened Here was researched and written by Samantha Render and myself, Kate Thompson-Davey. 